1: We have a chance to ride out this Omicron wave without shutting down our country once again. You have sat there too long for all the good you have done. In the name of God, go.
2: We need to recognise that Russia is now calling the shots here.
1: Mahat
3: in their sleaze with a divided party, a Prime Minister losing the
4: support of his backbenchers and governing shambolically.
1: You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Ewan Potts.
4: And good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepke. Well, coming up on today's programme, we're speaking to Ian Paisley, the Democratic Unionist Party MP for North Antrim. Also, we'll be discussing the toll of the pandemic on mental health with Dr. Nihara Kraus, who is the founder of charity STEM4.
1: Well, there we have it, or at least some of it. In her 12-page interim report, Sue Gray slammed failures of leadership and judgment at the top of Boris Johnson's government and criticised a culture of excessive drinking. The Prime Minister is promising an overhaul of the way that his office is run, but the scale of the police probe and Gray's damning initial findings mean he is far from off the hook.
4: And some MPs are calling for the full report to be released. Johnson's deputy, Dominic Raab, has told Sky News that you can't rush the process.
5: If there are any claims that need to go to the police, and Sue Gray has referred 12, that's fine. But they need to be looked at independently. And you can't then blame the Prime Minister or the government for not rushing the police to do their job.
4: Dominic Raab there. Meanwhile, the Prime Minister leaves one potential battleground for another. He's flying to Ukraine today to show support for the country, head of talks with Russia's Vladimir Putin this week. The Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss, had been due to join Johnson on that trip, but she is isolating after testing positive for Covid. Well, for more on those grey findings, this morning I spoke to Drew Hendry, the Scottish National Party MP and its international trade spokesperson. I asked what he thinks will happen to the Prime Minister now?
2: He's simply uh, got to go. The the Tory MPs, the backbenchers who sat through the farce of uh, seeing the Prime Minister under investigation by the police, a Prime Minister that's lied time and time again, misled Parliament willfully, uh, you know, trying to to pad this out so that he can survive was just uh, a spectacle too far. If they have any backbone whatsoever. If they have any uh, conscience, um, then they have to uh, kick this uh, Prime Minister mm-hmm. out.
4: Why did your, your own colleague, Ian Blackford, uh, also an SNP MP in Parliament, why did he break convention in Parliament yesterday? Uh, he called Boris Johnson a liar, for which he was, or, or the, the, the Prime Minister had lied, and he was ejected from Parliament. You're not allowed to use that term in Parliament. Why did he do that?
2: Well, because it's ridiculous that for somebody who's uh, evidently lied time and time again, everybody knows this. It's not a secret that, uh, you know, you know it, Every all of your listeners, that anybody who's been uh, watching the goings-on at Parliament know that Boris Johnson lies time and time again. He's done it this job, he's done it previously. And it's bizarre that uh, when Ian Blackford uh, spoke truth to power, when he... Uh, when he, he Said what was going on. He said it like it was that he was the one uh, that was threatened with uh, being thrown out of the Commons, as the, opposed to the, the, the person pl- who was guilty of telling these lies and misleading Parliament. Misleading Parliament is very serious. If you can't have uh, you know the uh, ability to have trust in the uh, in the instruments of state, then uh, you know that denigrates the whole uh, of the system.
1: So the SNP, Labour and the Liberal Democrats are all calling for the Prime Minister to resign over lockdown parties. Well, let's speak now to Ian Paisley, Democratic Unionist Party Member of Parliament for North Antrim in Northern Ireland. Ian, thanks so much for joining us on Bloomberg Westminster. Do you think he should go?
6: Well, I, I've taken a, a view that it's actually up to the people who hire and fire Boris Johnson to make this decision, because it's very clear Ian Blackford can call him a liar. And call for him to go and get thrown out of Parliament. The the Labour leader can call for him now, what, six weeks in a row for him to to go and nothing happens. All that serves to do when opposition parties call for a Prime Minister to go is actually galvanise support around the Prime Minister because the Tories clearly will not be told by opposition parties what they should do. The Tories have got to decide on their own, either through their cabinet ministers telling the Prime Minister he is to go, or by the backbenchers through the 1922 committee. And for me to add another voice of people crying, you must now go, Prime Minister, simply will just galvanise that support. And one would say that actually calling for him to go is really an effort to make him stay on because the opposition parties get a lot of uh, benefits out of having a Prime Minister that they can daily attack.
4: OK, but um, is this not a threat to our democracy in Britain? If a leader can't be removed, if he is found to have lied, I mean, all of this relies on the ministerial code, it relies on, on backbenchers. Uh, is that a real flaw, a weakness in our system?
6: Um, I don't think it is, because there, there has been an inquiry, there's an ongoing inquiry, and obviously the outcome of that inquiry will then go to the um, House will come to the backbenchers in the same way as it will come to me and to the Cabinet ministers. And they must decide on the basis of those facts and uh, on the basis of politically where they want to be. And so far it appears that the Conservative backbenchers continue to have faith in their leader and continue to want to have them on post and believe that with all of the downside, there's more of an upside for them now. They will be judged in on that one way or the other Common election, but that is uh, the position they're in. We don't have to wait too long for an election across the nation with regards to council elections quite soon, so um, the Conservative Party will have some evidence to go on as has their judgment been right or has it been wrong, but I, I must say, I do, I know what happened in my party. If uh, opposition parties said your leader must resign, we don't like him or we disagree with his policy or he's, he or she has handled this thing wrong as soon as an opposition says to you your leader must go, you galvanise around him. Be like Caroline if I were to turn around now and say nasty things about you, for example you would galvanise around him and defend your colleague in the same way and, and that happens professionally and I think we've got to get okay, into but, the mindset but then, so of how no people conse- work
4: If a Prime Minister lies to Parliament no consequence other than at the ballot box that's it?
6: No, there is consequence if he, if he's found to have lied to, to Parliament. Remember, there still is an inquiry ongoing. Sure. And they, they haven't haven't actually turned around and said, there's the damning indictment, there's the smoking gun, this is what you've done. And until they get that, I think once that happens, I think that mm-hmm. would be catastrophic for the Prime Minister.
1: On the uh, post-Brexit trading arrangement on the, the Northern Ireland Protocol, the DUP has repeatedly threatened to take action if major changes are not secured. February was a deadline. February is here now. When are you going to, to, to move on this? There have, been, there have been so many threats.
6: Yes, no, I think you're absolutely right. And I think we should be congratulated for our patience. quite frankly, because for the last year, we have been warning the government that uh, the protocol is having a detrimental impact on businesses. I mean, Just to put it on scale, there's less than uh, 10,000, 15,000 businesses in Northern Ireland. They're carrying a bill now of almost a billion pounds for having to do trade, not with overseas countries, but trade with their own country in terms of bureaucracy. And those small number of businesses cannot be expected to carry on footing a bill to satisfy the European Union, to show that they're in some sort of quasi-European district, which serves them very little benefit at all. So the, the, the protocol is not working. It's causing political upheaval. It's causing economic hardship for our businesses. It's causing consu- causing consumer problems, and we've got to therefore have the protocol changed, or it has to go. And uh, we've given the government time enough. They told us in July that the. Uh, protocol had now breached uh, and created enough problems to invoke Article 16. They still haven't invoked it. And uh, really, I think we're now in the last few days of uh, this executive, but pretty soon this executive will crumble because unionists can't continue to administer a country where their economy is being sucked dry Mm. by the European Union.
4: Is either side really likely to move, though, in the coming months, uh, or sorry, in the coming weeks, I should say? And does the British government have its eye on the ball when it comes to the protocol?
6: I think that's a good point. I I, I often I I have reminded the Secretary Gaelers, trust that you know Northern Ireland, the people of Northern Ireland, know that they only represent about two and a half percent of the entire economy and the entire populace of the United Kingdom. Therefore, we, we know how important we are or are not at any given time. And uh, whilst uh, we will have protestations, oh know you're all very important in Northern Ireland. I think we know that in proportion to current government policy and the breadth of issues that they're dealing with, the Northern Ireland only becomes an issue of interest if there are problems. And there is a problem. And what we're trying to say is that the sooner the government acts, they will then mitigate that problem. And that's what we should be doing rather than waiting for that problem to escalate. And I fear that the problem will escalate and that we could have even more political upheaval if the executive were to collapse, for example. And then they have to try and put all of that and reconstruct all of that. All we're asking for is for a level playing field within the United Kingdom. Remember, this protocol stops trade, between GB and Northern Ireland. We're all part of the one country. That is wrong.
1: Now, Ian, on another subject, you're calling for a change in the law to give families immediate access to digital data if one of their loved ones uh, dies. Just tell us why that's necessary and if you could address some of the issues around privacy as well.
6: Well, thank you, know, um, Well, this is my my private member's bill, which has uh, been given the nod by the government that they're they're interested in it. Um, basically, it allows access uh, to your digital device, if in may be unlikely, and, and sad circumstance if you were to have an untimely death or become completely mentally incapacitated. Uh, people would not be able, your immediate family, would not be able to access your phone. It may have fiduciary issues in it. It may have private sentimental material on it. But your family are at a complete loss. Now, they can take the big digital companies to court. It costs thousands of pounds. They may not get access depending on the judgment, or they may get access. I'm trying to regulate this and say, look, a person who has a digital device, even though they do not own the content, even though it's licensed, they're next of kin at the point of death or untimely death, should have immediate rights to access to the sentimental material, to financial material, to um, the material that um, people uh, you know would have had on their phone and would have normally shared. Now, you're absolutely right. Some people may have material in their phone, but they never, ever wish to share. Now, I think you could have an opt-out clause mm-hmm. that would allow a person to say, I don't want that phone ever to be accessed. Mm-hmm. But at the moment, we are now totally beholden to what the big digital companies want us to have.
4: Well, for the latest now on Partygate, we're joined from outside Downing Street by Bloomberg's James Walcott. James, good to have you on the programme. So after the appearance, the two hours in the Commons yesterday, Boris Johnson heads to Ukraine this afternoon to meet the president. Tell us about that trip.
5: So, yes, yeah, good to be here, although it's from a very chilly Downing Street Um and I've been here this morning because Johnson's been meeting with his cabinet ahead of this trip for Ukraine. I've even seen sort of cabinet ministers come in. I've seen some sort of the Lord of the Admiralty walk past. But this sort of building symbolizes this morning what Johnson's struggling with. As he attempts to try and move the agenda on, you can't help but look at Number 10 Gang Street and remember all the events that have been going on over here for the past two years. Um, but one interesting thing I wanted to touch on is that Liz Truss won't be going with Johnson's trip this afternoon. Although Johnson's been meeting with the president later, sort of in, in the UK afternoon time, about sort of 3pm UK time, uh, Liz Truss won't be there because she tested positive after sitting in the Commons yesterday. Um, so, but one thing that, that that sort of implies is kind of this sort of thing does matter and does sort of mean a lot to sort of Johnson, his backers and otherwise. Um, because he was basically planning on taking his entire entourage over there.
1: How effective do you think this will be to r- removing the prime minister from Downing Street? It's kind of symbolic, isn't it? A- a- g- going to Ukraine to address a-, a major foreign policy issue, is this going to really help with uh, moving on from party gate?
5: Well, it definitely is something conservative MPs want. Um, I'd note the kind of in sort of the big polls of like who is the most popular Tory cabinet member. this Truss used to top it, uh, has now been like sort of knocked off the top post by Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary. The big thing Ben Wallace has done over the past few weeks is he's written a big column about standing up to Vladimir Putin, and so that's kind of what MPs are sort of asking Johnson to do. They want this kind of firm leader who takes charge on foreign policy issues and can like lead the country from the front. The one issue with that, though, and so if this can like distract from kind of the party getting move the agenda on, so to speak, UN, is that yesterday Johnson was supposed to have a call with Vladimir Putin, President of Russia, um, but it was cancelled. And why? Because Johnson had to go to Parliament to defend himself against the publication of the Cray report.
4: Okay, James, thanks so much for being with us. Yes, uh, chilly outside uh, and inside, perhaps, uh, Downing Street. That is Bloomberg's James Walcock. So as Boris Johnson promises to overhaul the way that his office is run following the initial findings into the, uh, the Downing Street parties, his predecessor, Theresa May, was blunt, saying that he either didn't understand the rules or didn't think that they applied to number 10.
1: Well, early on Bloomberg Radio, we spoke to Liz David Barrett, Professor of Governance and Integrity at the University of Sussex. We started by asking her what the key takeaways were from Sue Gray's findings.
3: I think it's it's pretty damaging, not only the report but also his reaction to it. and the the real risk for me is around his future authority. So I think he's lost the respect of many of his peers. We saw that in their statements in the chamber yesterday. He's lost the legitimacy that he really needs to govern with the public. But also, he's he's compromised now. He's going to owe a lot of people who did support him if he manages to stay on in his position. And when you owe a lot of people a lot of things, that really opens the door to distorted decision-making. Um, and is quite a problem, I think, in terms of you know, who he'll be trying to pay back for that loyalty in the future.
4: Okay, so perhaps discredited in some way. Then um, we were speaking to our Bloomberg UK government reporter Joe Mays, about this earlier. He talked about there being strong evidence that the prime minister misled Parliament, and that that would normally be a resigning or a sacking issue. Is it a strength or a flaw in Britain's political system that you know that, that it is up to this code of conduct that ultimately is up to the prime minister? and his own MPs, whether he goes or not?
3: In the past, I've always thought it was a real strength, actually. So I think that the rules, you know, they do need to allow some discretion. They do need to be somewhat flexible. And if you think about, if you're trying to get people to behave in a certain way, it's actually much better if you've got them doing that out of their own volition, because you know that's what they feel is needed uh, for to sustain their political position, rather than they're doing it just because they're frightened that they'll get Uh, pulled pulled up on it. So actually in general I've been very much in favour of a system of self-regulation however it relies on people doing the right thing and that's what we've seen, repeated failures in this government instead of having that political accountability and going at the point when you've lost the legitimacy of the public, we've seen all these excuses, delaying tactics, constantly ordering inquiries, but then not responding to the findings of those inquiries, trying again to ignore them and pass the buck. So that's really damaging. So in a system that relies on conventions, it's really important that individuals show leadership and accountability uh, and stick to those rules and conventions when the the
4: crises come. Okay, so that was Professor Liz David Barrett there talking about uh, the findings of Sue Gray. Well, she did, of course, the civil servant highlight what a hard time it was in the UK during those lockdowns. And mental health problems essentially became synonymous with the pandemic. So let's move on to discuss that very issue, because according to the charity Young Minds and the Centre for Mental Health, a staggering one and a half million children and young people will need mental health support as a direct result of the pandemic over the next three to five years. So, joining us now is Dr. Nehara Krause, who is consultant clinical psychologist and also founder of STEM Four, which is a youth mental health charity. Dr. Krause, thank you so much for being with us. How thank you so are you? Nice thank you. How are young yeah. people recovering, in your view, now from the pandemic? I, I put it this way. If we're going back to school and back to work and perhaps back to some fun, please, will some of these problems dissipate, these enormous numbers of children and young people who need help?
7: Well, at some level, all of us need some sort of structure and predictability and young people all the more so. So if they feel that there is a predictability that their lives can resume, that they can pick up on making plans, whether it's for their education or whether it's for their social um, kind of engagement and connection, then that will help to manage anxiety i think what's very very difficult for young people and actually for adults alike is the huge amount of anxiety uh, and uncertainty that everyone has had to face you know whether Mm. it's another lockdown whether it's another uh, outbreak of infection or indeed whether there's kind of political or worldwide change all of those things raise our flight or fight response which in turn has impact on huge anxiety levels
1: is it right that there were some positive effects on mental health d- during the pandemic? I'm thinking, of, uh, for instance, the, the 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 death of of FOMO. A lot of uh, young people get very anxious, worrying about what other people are doing when we were all in lockdown and nothing, nothing much was going on. There, there was, I've read reports that there was a reduction in in that.
7: Yes, that's an extremely good question. So I think across the world, we noted that there were reductions in young people asking for help, engaging with kind of, you know, all the helplines, etc. And and the use of the Stem4 apps, for example, all went down right at the beginning um, of lockdown. And that was because people felt safe and people felt that potentially FOMO may be one of those things that actually everyone was in the same boat experiencing the same thing. What's, of course, very difficult is Now, as we all emerge from the pandemic, what the pandemic has revealed is that no one of us is affected equally. And so everyone is emerging at different stages uh, of having missed out. And the kind of urgency to catch up is even greater. So I think that potentially there will be the rise of FOMO, perhaps even more so as we progress further.
4: Mm. According to the NHS data, before lockdown measures, one in nine children had a diagnosed mental health problem. Now, apparently, it's one in six. How, do, how does Britain deal with this sort of overwhelming need that children and young people have? I mean, it's an enormous problem that the government must, must address. Absolutely. So
7: I think the government has been trying to think about funding, but funding isn't everything. It is actually very, very important. But there is at the moment, because young people have missed out on treatment, uh, because their their conditions have been further impacted by the pandemic. We have uh, a rise in very severe moderate to severe mental ill health conditions and those conditions need specialist help and they need longer term help and that is unavailable. We all know that the resourcing of specialist health services has been uh, underfunded for a very long time. And also we have got uh, a lot of health service staff who are not in um, kind of in employment at the moment for a variety of reasons. So we need more help and support to manage the more severe end, but we also need to resume uh, looking at early intervention, getting at the problems as early as we possibly can to stop chronicity and to stop the kind of severe impact that they might have. We need to engage with populations who cannot accept, uh, who who can't, don't have help to accept, because across the country, help isn't distributed mm-hmm. um, correctly. And we also need to educate all of us, including parents and carers, on how to look at offering first steps
3: to support.
1: As, as, as we move, hopefully, towards the end of the pandemic, what are your hopes for working from home and, and hybrid working from a mental health point of view?
7: Yes, well, stem carried out a recent survey of parents looking at uh, kind of looking at work patterns. And uh, what we found out was that parents who could choose to do some hybrid working uh, reported, less impact on their mental health. And some of the reasons that they gave were around flexibility, um, around being able to perhaps potentially balance their life, uh, work-life balance a little better. So I think there's more work to be done. But certainly, if we can accommodate, we've all been offered an opportunity that we would have never been able to take up, which is the opportunity for hybrid working. It would be good to explore further the impact and the benefit that that could offer. Uh, support people's mental
1: health. Bloomberg Westminster, listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state